Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Tube to Table podcast. First things first, progressing from feeding tube dependency to oral eating. Hi, Heidi. It's Jenny. How are you doing today? I'm good, Jenny. How are you this morning? I'm doing really good. Thanks. I hope that this is a helpful topic for our listeners. I know it's something that Heidi and I always find helpful as therapists to kind of get back to the way or the order of things when we're thinking about what should come next when we're on the journey towards helping a kid become an oral eater. So I hope the same is true for listeners. And we just wanted to, at the top of the show here, give a little shout out to a listener who emailed us with a question in Southern Australia. We're hoping to get to that in an episode here in the very near future. But to all of our listeners, thank you guys for the feedback. And please know if you have any ideas for future episodes, you can just reach out to us on any of our social media accounts or email us at thrive at spectrumpediatrics.com. And to dive right into what the order of moving towards independent oral eating is, the first step is like a foundational step, which is first, we do no harm. We want to make sure that in this first kind of phase that whatever we're doing, we're starting to minimize or eliminate things that are causing children to have a really complex or unfortunately negative association with food and feeding. So Heidi, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those negative things that we might want to consider stopping are. Sure. One of the most obvious is looking at, are all the medical things being taken care of? Are they still having to breathe too hard to eat? Is there some some other things that need to happen from a, a medical standpoint that are still making feeding uncomfortable? This is where we would consider changing formulas to one that's tolerated a little bit better. Sometimes it's using it's mealtimes. Sometimes it is things that are a little bit more changeable, such as a lot of external pressure to eat. Sometimes it's actually therapy, even if they're strategies that don't seem pressure filled. If the child perceives them as pressure filled, then that is where we would consider taking a break from therapy or taking a break from those mealtime situations. If it's you know a, a family member or a childcare provider who adds a lot of pressure to the mealtimes, it's time for a discussion about how do we change some of the things that's causing the child to pull away or back away or look distressed around food. So that makes me think of another thing that is frequent in therapies, but also in, you know, anyone that's really trying to help their kid just get there in terms of eating, is that you also want to refrain from using kind of external motivation to eat, which we've talked about in previous episodes and in our blog, like reward or coercion or praise. And the reason in this foundational, the main reason is that it sends the wrong message. In addition to all the other risks we've talked about in other places, (laughs) we're going to leave that out today. 
it sends the wrong message. The message it sends when kids eat for external reasons is that food is work and that they need to have a reward or a prize or something to motivate them to eat aside from the natural internal motivations to eat, which we're going to talk about in a minute. So when we send the message that food is work and food is hard and that we need to have a reward to do it or be coerced to do it, kids learn that it's not that much fun. And we all know that kids and adults alike don't like to do things that are not perceived as positive. So that's another thing to consider. Any therapies or strategies you're using that are for external gain can send the message that food is something that isn't ideal and you need to like work to overcome it, which is the opposite of what we want kids to experience. And Jenny, I think probably the one other thing that requires a really individual look and discussion between a medical team and your family is growth charts and volumes. I think we find that probably 80 to 90% of our kids who are diagnosed with reflux, when the volumes are decreased a little bit, the reflux symptoms stop. And some of that I think is putting children on growth curves that may be a little bit steep for them. We don't want to take the place of the medical team. We want to encourage people to work with their medical team, even if that takes a little bit more dialogue and education. What that represents is that a lot of kids are treated like a plot on a growth chart or like a plot on a, you know, I don't know. They're treated like a medical intervention <laughs> and that was necessary. They were, they were treated in that way because it kept them alive for the most of the time when there's a medical thing that happens to get, have the tube required. But now we want to move away in this phase, this first do no harm phase, I'm going to move away from that and start looking at like a child-directed approach that considers the child's health, wellness, and growth, but also considers who they're going to be in the future as an eater. So I think that pretty much sums up the main points of what things you should consider when we're working towards eliminating things that send the wrong message about food and have help kids have a negative association with food. And then the next phase is about building trust. So the next thing, once you've eliminated the things or minimized them to the point that you can that cause kids to have a negative association with food or feeding, you want to start working on building trust because the more trust that a child has around food, mealtimes, and the people feeding them, now the better chance they have of becoming a healthy and successful eater later. And so what kind of things, it might be helpful to kind of go through what goes into building trust. Probably the most obvious one that people remember or pay attention to is letting kids play with food. One of the sneaky things about that is that if you're completely directing that, then it's not play, then it can be perceived as work by the child. So we know from research in lots of different areas that child-directed food play is more helpful in overcoming aversion and in learning both. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to allow them to throw food around the room. Unless that's cool at your house. Yes. <laughs> if that's cool at your house, if, cool if at your you house, like to throw fair. food at your house, by all means. <laughs> but it, it has to work in your home. Yeah. And, you know, Jenny, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, but it really means take a break from working on food and allow child-directed food exploration. Yeah, I like, I like, instead of calling it play, I love when you call it exploration. I think you use that word a lot when you write about it and talk about it. And I love that because 
even if it's playful, it's still, it's allowing kids to explore it on their own terms, which is great. And then another really helpful idea that helps build trust around food feeding and the people feeding (laughs) is taking a break sometimes. And we talked a little bit about rest in a previous episode, but sometimes all of the work that we do to help kids eat feels like it is work. It feels like work. And sometimes taking a break and not that can take the pressure off. It can help kids kind of reframe what they think about food and feeding if there's not so much noise around what they're expected to do with food. It's funny. I think watching families as we work with them through this process, this is one of the secretly most difficult phases. It is for families. Feels like you're not doing anything at all. And yet you and I have found repeatedly that this is probably one of the most valuable parts of it. And every child whose family was able to take a true break from work around food had a more restful, successful experience in the long run. For sure. And then I think another really, probably the last really important, obvious thing for us as therapists, not so obvious if you're in it at the, at the moment, in, in the trenches trying to get your kid to eat, is that a lot of times we see kids refusing food and people are trying to override the refusal. They're trying to convince or they're trying to get around the refuser, overcome it. Yeah, sell it. They're trying to sell the food to the kids. And what we know about kids without feeding tubes is that when a child refuses food, it helps them trust the feeder, the person that's feeding them. When their refusal is accepted, they learn that it's safe. And as we all know, anyone that's fed kids knows, they're going to refuse a food a lot, some foods a lot of times before they start eating it and maybe even becomes one day one of their favorite foods. So that's for kids that don't have tubes. So it's an essential piece that often gets missed for kids that have feeding aversions or feeding tubes that you need to accept when a child refuses. You don't need to override it. That really helps them feel safe around food. So that kind of leads us after we've decided we're not doing any harm, we've started to build trust. Then the next step is we want to create what we call responsive family mealtimes. And responsive family mealtime practices help set the stage for lifelong healthy eating in children. And plus, they're better for everybody at the table, not just the kids. The focus, it's, it may seem a little subtle, but when you're really working on feeding, it's really easy for the focus of a family mealtime to be on bites, volume, trying, please take this bite, <laughs> please open your mouth. But the focus really truly of a mealtime should be on togetherness and enjoyment, getting, you know, and eating if that's the case of what you're doing. But it shouldn't be on the bites and the kind of minuscule breakdown of what's going in and, and what you're willing to try. So sometimes that subtle shift, it's actually not so subtle for for most of us towards just thinking about the most important thing of the meal is being together and enjoying it. If a child learns that a meal is a great place to be relaxed and be together, and granted, not every meal is going to feel that way if you have kids, but, or otherwise, but if they learn that this is a great place to be together and connect and have enjoyment, even if they're not eating anything the net takeaway is a positive one. So they're going to feel safer there when it is time for them to start eating. It is also one of the most common times in daily life for the whole family to be together. Yes. And that is crucial to the life of the family. And it's crucial to the child feeling an involved and active part of the family. And I mean, even research shows that families that eat together and have 
have happy family meal times, have longer term health, and so do the kids. Yeah. It's worth the time yeah. spent on it. I always like to add the caveat that a mealtime together doesn't have to be like what you see in a magazine. It doesn't have to be every meal. Just making sure that your family has regular quality time together. If it happens to be on the road, if it happens to be at soccer practice, you want to try to have some time where you're all, you know, like that stuff is really hard. We're talking about a time where you can all sit down and be together and connect over food. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be pretty doesn't have to be, you know, the recipes that you read on the blogs and see in the Instagram posts. Just the being together and eating is the most important thing. So don't put pressure on yourself to do it for every meal and don't put pressure on yourself to have it be perfect every time. But that togetherness and enjoyment is huge and critical. So do what you can. Start small and see how it goes. And then another thing that Heidi and I often help people with is that when there's a problem with feeding in any member of the family, we notice that mealtimes discussions move towards being about mainly food because we're trying to, again, sell the food <laughs> or convince a child to eat. Really, if you go to a restaurant with your partner and you're sitting there, you're not talking 80% of the meal about what's on your plate or what you're doing with the food on your plate, that would turn you off if that was what was going on. That wouldn't be a meal that you'd want to enjoy or would enjoy. So we, I like to encourage people to have a, it's okay to talk about food. We all talk about food a little bit when we're at the table. Oh, this is good. I really like that. Pass me the other thing. Those are normal things to talk about. But most of the discussion, I say 80% or much more, <laughs> should be about life and stuff and other things. And it's okay to have some silence too, though. I think that's pretty rare <laughs> if there's kids involved. So just shifting the focus of discussions away from food and back towards what they may be. And that's not so easy all the time. And I think it's getting more difficult to have past experiences with happy family meal times. In fact, there's some websites and we can put some links to them in our show notes about how to have a happy family meal time. And it's just topics, things that you can bring up to talk about with your kids at different ages. Cause not everybody has an easy, comfortable time coming up with ways to have discussions with kids. And so yeah. there are resources out there. Especially if you're concerned about what they're eating or, you know, their health, you're, it's easy to like, you know, fall into that rabbit hole and get talking all about food. So those would be some great resources. I use them. <laughs> I'm a feeding therapist and I can tell you there are nights where I'm like, uh, just, you know, you just like want them to finish what's on their plate or at least start it. And so it's really nice to have a few tricks in your back pocket to get the conversations going. And then this along the same lines in that vein, you also don't want to be talking about what or how much people are eating. Like if you go, again, if you go out to dinner with your partner, he's not saying, oh, wow, great job. You're eating broccoli. Or I noticed you finished your plate. Like those are not conversations that really foster connectedness or a healthy relationship with food. So moving away from the what or how much people are eating at the table. And as we move into the next step, I just, we can wrap this up by saying with most of the kids, when they start becoming oral eaters, what they're the most proud about at the end when their facial expressions are proud of what they've done, it isn't because they ate the whole thing. It's almost always when they're sitting at the table with their family doing what everybody else is doing as an active participant. That's so true. They're just so pleased to be part of the team. Yeah. And, and that's just huge. So I think, Jen, if you want to talk a little bit about the next stage, which is discovering internal drives to eat, I think that's yeah. a really key part of 
of what we do in this program. It is. So we touched on it briefly, but we want kids to learn to listen to their bodies. And the reason is that learning to listen to your body leads to self-regulation, which is helping your getting your physiological needs met through, you know, self-directed activity. So in the case of eating, listening to your body and what it needs around food is the key to developing a lifelong healthy relationship with food. And so we've talked about this previously, it's in several blog posts, but the internal drives to eat are hunger, taste, comfort, curiosity, and this big one we just hit on, which is togetherness. Those are the natural drives to eat. So allowing for those to emerge. So in the case of hunger, we're not talking about starvation, <laughs> but you do want to allow your children to get to experience hunger because that's the natural environment, as we talked about last week, I believe. <laughs> that's the natural environment for learning to eat and regulate how much you take. So, and then the other things are kind of really awesome, <laughs> kind of things that also come along, taste, comfort, curiosity, and togetherness. Often it takes the hunger kind of to get the kids starting to listen to their bodies and then they can feel comfortable doing things like tasting and really enjoying their their family at a mealtime. And again, those that self-regulation, is, that ability to listen to the body and respond to what it's telling you is what drives kids to have a future positive relationship with food and minimizes their health risks that are associated with poor self-regulation. And just like a quick caveat here. So not only are you working in this phase on discovering the internal drives to eat, but you also want to kind of get away from those external cues as we touched on previously, because they get in the way of self-regulation and many other reasons. But in this phase, that's the key. The external cues really get in the way. And Heidi, skills is something as a speech therapist with a ton of experience around skill development, you have a really great ability to help parents and kids with. And so I was wondering if you could talk about this next phase, which is where we support the development of skills. Sure. I think watching typical kids learn to eat, it seems like it's magic. But what's really happening is kids come in with some drives to get it started reflexes when you're an infant, hunger, all of those things get the process started. And then the mouth has the experience of eating and it begins to adapt around and repeated experiences that are successful and comfortable are what they build on to develop skills further. So even if it feels like it's magic or even it feels like the grownups did it, it really is part of natural development and it becomes automatic with the repeated experiences and success. And I think that gets missed a lot in therapies that people are working on to try to help their kids' mouth function better before they're hungry. And what we know is that if eating isn't meaningful for the child, if it's only meaningful for the adults, then that skill development is going to be really limited. So we often hear from people, well, they don't have the skills to eat yet. Well, no, they don't because they're not eating. And so they have to, eating helps you eat. (laughs) The act of eating and wanting to eat and feeling safe around food comes first. And then the learning is exponential. The, The skill development really takes off. We know why. We know it's because their brain is making connections in a really different way when it comes from within and when it has meaning. The research out there shows us that that's the best way to improve motor skills in general, but in this case, oral motor skills or self feeding skills specifically. One of the big concerns is that eating skills often lag significantly behind their other skills. And what we know going through this program is that if you are at a certain developmental level, 
in gross motor and fine motor that with the internal motivation to eat and with repeated successful experiences, the kids' skills can come to the level where the rest of their body's skills are. It would be extremely unusual for the mouth to lag significantly behind in potential or inability. Yeah, and I'll say the opposite can also be, or not the opposite, but kind of the more advanced version of that can also be true, which is if a child has a severe diagnosis that causes them to have major limitations in motor skills or other skills unrelated to feeding, that doesn't mean that they can't learn to eat, which there's this misconception out there that because they're unable to sit up or walk or whatever the case may be, that eating just isn't realistic for them. And that may be true for some kids and they may need a feeding tube and that may be their perfect path to being able to thrive and function well in life. But what we see is that even kids with severe other skill, like eating is a really fundamental part of, you know, how we live and what we do. And so we find that even kids with motor skill issues or other developmental problems can excel beyond that developmental level with feeding should these other steps, these kind of pre-foundational steps that we already talked about today be addressed in earnest. Now, I was going to say, I think we can talk about this more in a later episode as well, because this really is a big, significant yeah. part of yeah. people's questions and, and part of the development of kids. But for this piece, if, if your child is safe with one consistency, they can develop the skills to be an oral eater without a full complement of motor abilities. Mm-hmm. So, and then here's what I like to say. So we're going to get to that in a future episode. Heidi's going to kind of elaborate on the skill part of it, especially the oral motor skill part of it. She not only has all of that kind of specialty, but also the swallowing piece of it, which is really helpful for people to consider. So we're going to get into all of that in a separate episode. But just as a quick what to do right now, if you're stuck and you feel like you've done a good job of helping their, you know, these other kind of major progressions of building the foundation to not doing any more harm, to building trust, to creating responsive family mealtimes, and to helping your child discover internal drives to eat, and you're stuck at this skill place and you're not seeing progress, you can find feeding professionals that practice from a responsive framework. They might not call themselves responsive, but if they're tuned in to these underlying things that we just talked about, those foundational elements of helping a child have a positive relationship with food, professionals that are practicing from a responsive feeding standpoint can also help you with the skill progression. So look for a responsive feeding professional that has skill experience. So if your child is really stuck with an oral motor skill or a swallowing deficit, you can find an expert that can help with those skill subsets, but you don't want to abandon all of this other stuff that leads to a lifelong positive relationship with food. So you're going to want to have a conversation as you're pursuing which professionals to get help from that really makes you feel secure as a parent that they are practicing from a responsive standpoint, which means they're kind of addressing all of these foundational elements. So I think that leads us into our favorite phase of what happens and, and what comes first. And, and it's what comes last is the most exciting part, which is a, ch- a child can thrive. So if you've done all these things, you've supported skill development and your child is doing it, what comes next is that they're thriving. They're, they're thriving and growing and gaining when they feel safe, when feeding is meaningful and social. They can participate in family mealtimes and mealtimes with their peers or at school or whatever the case may be for them, and they can enjoy it. And I think we find that families experience meals as being more manageable. 
that focus is back on being together, you're kind of out of that trap of really stressful mealtimes into this ease. It doesn't mean feeding your family is ever super easy, but the child is perceiving food as a regular part of life. And then they are also able to eat enough to help meet their body's needs over time. <laughs> so that means if you look at a week, they're getting what they're getting their nutritional needs met. This is probably where we get the most follow-up comments that parents are just appreciating. And again, like you said, family mealtimes are not always going to be smooth. There's always going to be frustrations when you're trying to feed a group of people and keep everybody happy at the end of the day or beginning of the day or whatever. But the comments that I enjoy and appreciate the most are the ones where they say, she went to a birthday party and for the first time she could eat the birthday cake. Yeah. Virginia mentioned they went to the diner and her daughter just like she, her, her husband cut up grilled cheese and she, and her daughter ate the pieces of grilled cheese right. and it just felt, she just like looked around and was like, wait, this is happening here. It may not be always pretty. It might not be always beautiful, but it's happening in a way that feels natural. I remember one little girl saying her dad had always looked forward. He went out for coffee every Saturday morning and that was going to be his daddy daughter date. And she was four and it had never happened. And then suddenly she was four and a half and they got to go have coffee and she ordered a drink with the frothy whip topping and a donut because that was what her dad had always wanted to do. And it was the first time and he just was so excited. That's awesome. So we have all of these things that lead to that moment <laughs> that help you, that are necessary really to progress from tube dependency to those moments that we all are helping, hoping for children to experience and families to experience. We have a visual an infographic that helps kind of describe what this looks like. And so in our show notes, you'll be able to look and see a link to that. And it can be a really helpful reminder. We have some people that remind themselves by throwing it up on the refrigerator so that when they're stuck trying to make a decision about how to address a feeding challenge, they can kind of figure out where they are in this progression and get back to basics. So we hope this episode was helpful. We're going to be back next week with an exciting topic. So we're happy to have have you and we'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook we can be found at Thrive with Spectrum and on Twitter you can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 